God, I pray that you would speak to your people this morning again of what we just saying, that there is no one who is like you. We look out into the world and there are people who um, think of themselves in very high terms, and there are some who appear to have great power. And uh, we're tempted to think that, that there are others who maybe could compete with you a little bit. Um, we probably wouldn't dare to actually say that, uh, but in our hearts and in our minds, uh, we're tempted to be uh, more impressed by others than with you. And so I pray that you would use uh, your word this morning to draw us back to ultimate realities, that we would know you in all of your glory, we would know you in all of your splendor, and that we would be able to sing again, there is no one like you, there's no one like the God that we worship this morning. So I pray that you would use your word to make us worshipers of you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, have you ever wished that you knew the future? Uh, I think I used to uh, want that more than I want it now. Um, I was thinking about that this week, and, and I realized that probably um, I really wouldn't be able to handle knowing everything that was going to come in the future. So let me just give you an example. If, if you had told me uh, 20 years ago when I first met Emily Bauer that one day I would marry her, uh, I would have been utterly perplexed. Uh, I would first of all have asked the question, well, why would I get married at all? Why would I want to marry anyone? And then, of course, the second question of, well, why her? I mean, she's nice and all, but, but she doesn't even play sports. I mean, what, what would we even do together? Like, there, there's not really a lot of connection here. And if you had told uh, Emily uh, 15 years ago, when we were in high school together, that she would marry me, uh, she very well might have broken down into sobs. Um, she would have thought, well, he's from my hometown. Why would I marry someone from my hometown? And then on top of that, he's just, well, he's not the nicest guy around. Sometimes he's really mean and things like that. And why would I ever want to marry him? And yet here we are, uh, happily married, uh, some 10 years later, and despite the fact that neither of us, if we had been told the future uh, 15 or 20 years ago, would have been uh, very happy to hear that. See, I think the future is often more than we really have the capacity to handle emotionally. Uh, we, We might think that we'd like to know what's going to happen, but are we really prepared to hear it? Uh, Today we finish up our series in the book of Daniel, and and we see that God is giving Daniel uh, a picture, a message about what is going to happen in the coming years. And and while we see that there's a a great degree of God's grace in this, because God is helping Daniel understand what's happening so that when it happens, he's able to have confidence that God is in control. So there is a lot of grace here, and yet at the same time we see in Daniel's response that this is just too much for him. It's, it's more than he can handle. So he's hearing this, and understandably, he's, he's really shaken by it. So let's take a look at the text this morning. It's Daniel uh, chapter 10, 11, and 12. So we've got a big text in front of us this morning. We're not going to be able to read every verse, but we'll get a sense of what the end of Daniel is really all about. We're going to see this in three parts that teach us three important lessons. Uh, part one is uh, unbearable glory that Daniel gets to witness. This is how it begins in Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, As I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, 
his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. So Daniel's about to give a, get a message about what's going to happen in the coming uh, centuries here. But before he gets a sense of any of that, he gets this vision of this man. And, and the man is described in terms that might be hard for us to kind of picture or hard for us to grasp. And the degree to which we can picture them, they might seem a bit bizarre to us and maybe even comical to some degree. I mean, the guy has, has eyes that are like laser beams, right? But whatever we might associate with that description, really it's a powerful picture of glory that Daniel gets to witness here. And we see that in the response. The people who were with him don't even get to see it, and yet they're terrified. They run away. And then Daniel himself, who sees it, falls flat on his face because he can't stand the glory that he has just seen. So it's an indicator of the awestruck glory that he's witnessed. But, of course, the question for us is, well, who is this man? And we can't be absolutely sure, but it's interesting that we hear a very similar description in the last book in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 1. Listen to the description here and listen for the similarities. This is John writing, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and then I turned, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So you see a lot of similarities here from the description of the bronze to the gold sash around his waist uh, to the the face that's gleaming in the fire and stuff like this. There's, There's a lot of similarities here. And then note the similar response that the, the one who witnesses it has. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now in Revelation chapter 1, this is clearly a vision of Jesus in all of his glory. And so that means it's, it's also a possibility for what Daniel saw as well. Although, of course, this was before uh, the incarnation, so Daniel would not have recognized who Jesus was. But we can't be dogmatic about it, but there's still a pretty good chance that that's what Daniel is seeing. In any case, he is so awestruck that he just lies face down on the ground. Well, the good news is he's about to get some help here. Verse 10, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I've been sent to you. When he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. 
How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone. I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. Now, the speaker here could be the same one from the vision that he saw, or it could be uh, Gabriel coming back. We see Gabriel several times uh, in the book of Daniel interpreting the visions. Either way, it's fascinating how much time is spent here describing the response that Daniel has and how much time is spent just to bolster his confidence. I mean, he's not even able to hear what God is going to, to share with him, this message of the future, because he is so filled with terror. I mean, you look at him and he's He's a wreck, right? He's first face down on the ground. Someone has to pick him up so he can stand. And even as he's standing, he's trembling. And he says he can't even speak. And so then he's given another kind of ministry of the Spirit. And he's able to speak then. He's able to give voice to how terrified he is. And finally, he gets another message from God. And he's able to be strengthened. Be strong. Be strong. Now, why is this so hard for Daniel? I mean, Daniel has seen powerful empires rise and fall in his day. But God is, is kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit here to show that this is part of a much bigger battle. Did you catch that in verse 13? The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. It's similar to what we see a little bit later in the chapter. Do you know why I have come? He said, Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what's written in the book of truth. That's verse 20. So we know from elsewhere that Michael, who's referenced here, is uh, an angel of God. We hear that in Revelation 12. We hear it in Jude 1. So it appears that this messenger now is, is talking about a cosmic battle that is happening here between the, the spiritual forces of evil and then God's uh, angels and those who are on his side. Now, we have to admit that to our Western Enlightenment ears, uh, this concept might sound foreign and it might even sound a bit superstitious to us, that that there might be a a spiritual battle going on or a cosmic kind of a battle. But the reality is this is what the Bible speaks of as what is happening. So Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, uh, says this in in Ephesians 6.12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I mean, Paul's talking about the same thing that Daniel's getting a picture of here in Daniel 10. There are spiritual forces at work in the world on God's side and his angels and on uh, the side of darkness and, the, and Satan's side. Now, in, in, some case, in some places in the United States, it's still okay to talk about spiritual forces. Like in the Pacific Northwest, you might be able to talk about spiritual energy and things like that in kind of a vague way. But, but here in the Midwest, we tend to be uh, kind of good realists if we were to generalize a little bit. We like to think about concrete cause and effect and those kind of things. And, and spiritual forces just don't really fit well in our mindset. But we would be naive to think that we know the whole picture of what is happening. Yes, there are causes and effects, and yes, there's certainly enough evil in human hearts within ourselves to account for all of the, the, the hard things that we see in the world without looking for spiritual forces behind them. But of course, there are tons of things that are happening behind the scenes that, that we just don't realize and that often we just don't even account for at all. A friend of mine got a chance to go uh, behind the scenes at a nationally televised football game once, and he got to see how much went on behind the scenes to get that football game onto your TV screen at home, and he was amazed. 
So take one very simple thing, that yellow line that marks uh, how far they have to go to get a first down. It's a very simple thing. You probably don't even uh, register it in your mind as you're watching. It's just there. Hours and hours of production time go into getting that one single yellow line on your TV screen. A whole team of technicians spends hours before the game prepping for this. They first have to start off by making a three-dimensional uh, model of the entire field. Turns out fields aren't flat. They have kind of a dome to, to uh, help with runoff and stuff like that. Uh, so they have to make an exact three-dimensional model of the field first because no two fields are exactly the same. With changing weather conditions, things change there as well. So first they have to make this perfect model, and then from there they have to go to every single camera in the entire stadium and get it all the way zoomed in, all the way zoomed out, every single angle, up, down, left, right, all of that, and get every single possibility of what might come up on that screen at your home and get it so that line looks exactly right on there. All told, it takes eight computers and four full-time people to run that system. All for one little yellow line. And when you're watching at home, you don't even think about it, right? It's just there. It's so easy for us to think that we know everything that is going on, but there are tons of things that are happening that behind the scenes that we just don't think about, we just don't get. And if that's true for something as mundane and non-mystical as a graphic on your TV screen during a football game, Is it really so hard for us to believe what the Bible says about a larger spiritual battle going on? See, the lesson we learned before we even hear anything about what's going to come in the future is that there is a cosmic battle going on here. The forces of God are on one side and the spiritual forces of evil are on the other side. And as Daniel gets a glimpse of this larger cosmic battle, it is overwhelming to him. He just can't stand it. So he he has to be ministered to so he can even get to the point of being able to hear what's going to happen. So finally, he's gotten to that point, and now uh, this messenger is going to give him a picture of what's going to happen in the future. So we turn now to part two, and we see that history here is really written in advance through this prophecy. Starts in verse two of chapter 11. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will rise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now, Dana is living under Persian rule. This is under the reign of King Cyrus of Persia that we see in the beginning of chapter 10. But God shows him through this messenger that, that this kingdom that he's living in is not going to last. There are going to be a few more Persian kings, and then a king will rise from Greece. This is uh, who we know as uh, Alexander the Great, who is this uh, very impressive king. And, and this really lines up with what we know of his life from history as well. But the rest of this chapter, the rest of chapter 11 here, is going to give in great detail the struggle between the dynasties that come out of Alexander's empire. We won't get a chance to read the whole thing, but we'll get a sense of what's happening here. But what we see in this chapter really is an amazingly accurate prophecy of the course of history between these two dynasties. There are going to be the Ptolemies in the south, based out of Egypt, and then there are going to be the Seleucids in the north. And as you open historical accounts of this time period, you can very easily align what you see in this prophecy from the messenger of God with what happened historically uh, in the uh, books that we can read and find out now. It's an incredible level of accuracy. 
In fact, it's so accurate that, that some people think that the, this must have been written after the fact. This, this must have been written in the second century after all that stuff happened between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and all that. Otherwise, the reasoning goes, how could it be so accurate? But in truth, we have no reason beyond our own skepticism to doubt that this was written as a prophecy to Daniel in the 6th century. Now, I get why people are skeptical, but if we just think about it, we'll see this makes total sense, right? If God really is God, if he really is the one who created all things, if he is as powerful as the Bible says he is, then of course he's going to be in control. Of course he's going to know the whole course of history. And so it's a very easy thing for him to be able to tell Daniel in specific detail what's going to happen. And in fact, that is the lesson that we learn from this second section. We learn that God is so completely in control that he can tell exactly what is going to happen in the future. See, this is a message that's given to Daniel to write down to give God's people confidence in God as they see these events begin to unfold in history. So yes, this is going to be a scary time because between the north and the south is this land called Israel. And that's where God's people are going to be. And they're going to be in constant danger. The kings from the north are going to be coming down through their land with their armies. The kings from the south are going to be coming up through their land with their armies. And, and they're going to be fighting for control over the middle as well as a strategic part of this whole conflict. So God's people are going to be in great danger. It's going to be a scary time for them. They need to understand that God is in control so much so that he can let them know ahead of time what's happening. And so it bolsters their trust in him. It's been really interesting this week to, to look at chapter 11 here and to, to look back at some of the history of the time period and really see how, how they line up well. So let me give you just one example of this. And listen to the, the prophecy in verses 5 and 6. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed, together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. Well, it turns out this is uh, talking about events that happened in 250 BC. Uh, this is about uh, the king of the south, Ptolemy II, and he goes to the king of the north, Antiochus II at this point, and proposes an alliance. He's going to give uh, Antiochus, his daughter, Berenice, in marriage. And this is good, right? It's promoting peace, except it doesn't work. Turns out Antiochus had been married before, and his first wife lines up having Berenice and her son killed, and the whole thing unravels and falls apart, and there's more bloodshed. And you can see that as you continue the story here. But you can go through chapter 11 here and, and be reading these details, and think, oh, I wonder what that's about. And then you can go back to the history books and see, oh, this it's Ptolemy II. Oh, it's Antiochus II. And you can go down and see how they really line up very well. You could have the Bible in one hand and, and the historical accounts in the other and really be able to see how this lines up and finds out more about this. It's like my wife and I, we've been, we've been listening to uh, the Broadway show uh, Hamilton, the, the soundtrack for that, uh, a lot in the past couple of weeks because uh, we're really cool people and we do things like listening to Broadway shows. Uh, Hamilton, if you've heard about this, it's this, uh, it's this kind of uh, hip-hop uh, Broadway musical of the life of Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers. And, and so it's, it's got these really catchy and addictive songs, and we sign ourselves listening to the lyrics and then uh, grabbing our phones to, to Google more about these different characters. So there's this song about the Revolutionary War that starts like this, and uh, bear with me, I will not try to uh, do this in hip-hop. Uh, I'll just quote. So how does a ragtag army, a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower, somehow defeat a global superpower? 
Turns out we have a secret weapon, an immigrant you know and love who's unafraid to step in. He's constantly confusing, confounding the British henchmen. Everyone give it up for America's favorite fighting Frenchman, Lafayette. So we're listening to think, well, who's Lafayette? So we pull out our phones and look it up. Oh, it turns out he is uh, Gilbert de Motier, Marquis de Lafayette. He's this Frenchman who heard about the cause of the Revolutionary War. He became so convinced of the rightness of it, he left his wife and his young daughter in France, came over and supported the cause, went back to France, got guns and ships and supplies, and really uh, had a, a huge impact on the Revolutionary War. We think, well, that's interesting. But song after song, we find ourselves doing this. We'll, we'll hear something in the lyrics with it. Well, well, what's that about? And we'll go and look it up and see how it lines up back and forth. It's kind of an addicting thing for us. You could do the same thing here in Daniel chapter 11. Well, it says this about this king of the south. What's that about? What, what, what's this king of the north? What's this event here of this alliance and all that? And you could go and look it up and see, oh, okay, that's Ptolemy II. Oh, that's Antiochus III and so on. But the big lesson in this whole thing is that this is something that's given to Daniel before any of this even happens. So the big lesson is that God is so completely in control that he can write the history before it even happens. He knows everything that is going on here, and so God's people have confidence. Now, there's something that happens toward the end of this. We get to a king that's very important from the perspective of God's people, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And we heard about him in a whole chapter in Daniel chapter 8, but he shows up in this prophecy as well. Look at halfway through verse 30. It's talking about uh, him turning against God's people. He will, then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. I mean, this is exactly what happened in history in the 160s and 170s as Antiochus IV lost a battle down in Egypt and was humiliated, sent back through uh, the land of Israel. He stopped by Jerusalem and really devastated that whole city and set up the the worship of of his God, the worship of Zeus in the temple that's dedicated to the one true God. So a devastating thing for God's people. And notice the strong language that's used, skipping down to verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. This is certainly true of Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. When you look at the coins that he uses later on in his reign, and he's not just calling himself Antiochus, he's calling himself God-manifest, victory-bearer. Now, as we get toward the the end of this, we see that, that what is said of Antiochus ends up not really aligning with what happens in history. What it looks like here is happening is, is history is being telescoped here. So it starts off with Antiochus Epiphanes, who is who's really a, a, a kind of the, the paramount of how bad it is when someone turns against God's people. But the language intensifies as we get further into this prophecy here, and, and it ends up being too big for Antiochus IV. I mean, history shows that he was not as successful as what is shown here. And we get further clues here that this is about something bigger. 
as it's moving toward the end of the chapter and into the beginning of chapter 12, this is moving toward uh, the end, and it's suggesting that, there's a, that there is that telescoping of history here. So it looks like the writer is using Antiochus Epiphanes really as a, as a jumping point to talk about the forces of evil in a more ultimate sense. And this isn't unusual for apocalyptic literature like this. So if you look in the book of Revelation, it uses uh, Babylon, which had fallen centuries earlier, to uh, describe the embodiment of evil. So we see here, as, the, as we get toward the end of chapter 11, that this king who is exalting himself above gods really becomes the embodiment of the forces of evil. So we could use the term antichrist to describe him and really be on the right track here. It's basically the embodiment of, of everything that is opposed to God, and it's really raging at the end. And so this is where that, that future history turns from the, the more immediate centuries after Daniel's life, things that have already happened in our experience, to the time of the end. And so we get now to the third part here and see the end of the matter, beginning in the start of chapter 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. These will be times of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, What will be the outcome of all this? He replied, Go your way, Daniel because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end, You will rest, and then at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. So Daniel hears this message, and and it's too much for him, right? He's dumbfounded. He doesn't understand what all this is about. So there's two questions here that are addressed at the end. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, the first is, how long? And the second is, what does all of this mean? And the question, how long, gets a very concrete answer, right? 1,290 days, 1,335 days, both about three and a half years. And this is interesting because it's pointing back to what we saw in Daniel 8, with a specific time of deliverance from Antiochus Epiphanes mentioned there. And it's also looking uh, ahead and coordinating with what we see in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 13, when it speaks of a beast bringing terror against God's people for 42 months. Again, 
three and a half years. So it's again using Antiochus IV to point back to what's happening there and then using him as a jumping point to jump from him, that epitome of evil, to the Antichrist at the end and all of the forces that will oppose God and his people. But there's a second question here. What does this mean? And what is the takeaway for Daniel? Well, the takeaway for Daniel and the takeaway for us as we read is that there is good news at the end of all this bad news. So yes, kingdoms rise and fall. And each one of these kingdoms that comes looks strong. And when they're starting off, it looks like they're going to be invincible. But very quickly, you see that they uh, turn down and they lose their power. Each one is strong. Each one is terrifying. Each one can cause much fear and much pain. And that will continue through the end. It will culminate in, in this embodiment of evil at the end, coming to bring great trial on God's people. But what Daniel and we need to understand is what happens at the very end. God wins. That's the third lesson that we learn in this third part. No matter what happens in the end, God wins. Now, we don't have to understand all of the details. We don't have to understand every single thing that's being talked about. Daniel himself didn't understand it. But what we do need to understand are the big truths, the big lessons that are put forth in these chapters. First, that there is a cosmic battle going on. There's something much bigger than just flesh and blood that we're talking about here. And we see a God kind of unveiling the curtain a little bit so that we see a picture of what's happening. There is a cosmic battle at war here between God's forces and the spiritual forces of evil. The second thing is that God is in control. He's so much in control that he can write history ahead of time. That's the level of of sovereignty that God has. And then finally here that no matter what happens, God wins in the end. Now, if we know these big things, then we can live a life of faithfulness to God, even in the worst times. And that's the point of Daniel. See, these chapters are really putting the final exclamation point on the book of Daniel. The theme that's been pushed for this whole time is that God is really king. God is the one who is in control. No matter how things look, no matter how bad things get, you can trust God and you can live in peace because you know that God is good. You know that he is in control. You know that he is bringing this world to a good end. Jesus put it like this for his followers in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the point here. God is king, and all of those who trust in him can live in peace no matter what is happening around them because we know the bigger story and we know the end of the story. Now, we might not always have the capacity to be able to handle what God tells us is going to happen, but what we can do is rest in knowing what is true of God. God is king now and always. Now, all this means that we are faced with an important decision. We've seen how the book of Daniel pushes this theme forward that God is in control, that he is king. And yet the way that the book ends, we see that we are accountable for what we do with that knowledge. Eight years ago, when Barack Obama was elected to be president of the United States, I saw a bumper sticker that said, not my president. I've heard the same sentiment uh, this year after the election. But here's the thing. Even if you don't like it, whether you like it or not, Barack Obama is today president of the United States. And if you are a citizen of the U.S., he is your president. 
And whether you like it or not, Donald Trump has been elected to be the next president of the United States. And whether you like it or not, if you are a United States citizen, he will be your president. So we can say, well, it's not my president, but we're wrong, right? Our, our statements can't change the objective reality of what is true. Daniel is saying, listen, God is king. No matter how things look, God is king. Now, maybe you wouldn't dare say, well, he's not my king. And maybe some of you are at that point, but I think few of us would, would dare to vocalize that, that God is not your king. And maybe you wouldn't do that, but, but there are lots of ways that we subtly, if not by our words, at least by our actions, show that that's our sentiment. See, we have a choice every single day who is going to be on the throne of our lives. For some of us, the king, the one who's on the throne, who's controlling everything, is me, myself. My desires, my aspirations, my goals, my pleasure. And for others, the, the king that we serve, the one who's on the throne in our lives, is our kids. This is very common in our culture. Their needs, their desires, their wants, their advancement is the very center of my life, and that is my whole life revolves around my kids. For others, our king is, is our ambition. I will make it to the top of fill in the blank, whatever your highest ambition is. But here's the thing. None of those things are ultimate. The good that is in every one of those things is designed to point to a much greater good. They point beyond themselves to the only thing that can truly satisfy us, which is God himself. And it is only when we acknowledge that God is king, when we make him on the throne in our own lives, when we bow our hearts to him and give our lives over to him, that we find true freedom, true peace, true meaning. See, the right response this whole book to knowing that God is really king is to make him king in our lives. That's what Daniel did. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. They saw the earthly rulers around them calling for attention, demanding obedience, demanding allegiance. But their hearts were attuned to a different king. They acknowledged the one true king, and they decided that they would live in obedience to that king no matter what it cost them, no matter what else was happening, even if it meant that they would be thrown into a fire to be killed, even if it meant they would be thrown into a den of lions to be torn apart even if, if it meant setbacks to a position of favor and influence, even if it meant discomfort, no matter what, they're deciding that they're going to live with God as their king and God alone. We are called to do the same. See, the book of Daniel is a powerful reminder, not only that we are not in control and that those who are around us are not in control, but that it is such great news for us that God is the one who is on the throne that he is the one who is in control. This God is so intent on winning us back that he sent his own son at great cost to himself on this great rescue. That's how intent he was on winning our hearts back to him. So when the forces of sin and darkness and death are raging, when they seem to be at their worst, God sends Jesus to change the story and to defeat them. And he does. He does so in the most surprising way possible. He dies for us. And that's what we get to celebrate today. Jesus died for us, and so we now have life. 
So we get to celebrate this meal that Jesus gave us this morning. And as we do so, I want you to think about what we are doing as we take this meal together. We are proclaiming the reality that God is King. See, we're proclaiming the death of Jesus that has won God's great victory. And and we're saying that we participate in that. When we take the bread, when we take the cup, we're saying, I belong to Jesus. I'm participating in Him. God is my true King. See, we're showing that we believe the truth of what we've seen through this book, accepting with gratitude the amazing gift of being forgiven by the death of Jesus for us. So as we prepare to take this meal, I'd ask you to pray with me as we prepare our hearts to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Please join me in prayer.